This episode of the Athletic Business Podcast is brought to you by Synexis. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Business Podcast. I'm Jason Scott. And I'm Andy Berg. And today on the show, we are going to be doing something a little bit different today. Uh, we are featuring audio from one of our recent webinars, our virtual workshop series that we've been running uh, with uh, lots of our industry friends and partners. Um, and today's uh, workshop is titled Getting Back in the Pool, How to Safely Reopen Your Aquatics Facility. Uh, this was actually um, a webinar that we did in September, but the content is still obviously relevant as we are starting to hopefully get things back going again. Uh, we've got some great guest speakers featured uh, on, on our panel, including Justin Karen. Sean DeRosa and Megan Playley. And Andy, do you, you were actually um, on this panel. Did you want to um, kind of share any thoughts on the content before we jump in? Yeah, so uh, as you said, Sean, uh, Justin, and Megan were on this, this panel of experts, um, and you really get a great um, variety of perspectives on aquatics and, and what the challenge has been around reopening. Um, Justin is a principal architect at Aquatic Design Group. Sean is um, owner of DeRosa Aquatic Consulting. And Megan um, it comes from the, the operator side. She's an aquatic program administrator at Bainbridge Island Metro Parks and Rec District. So a lot of evergreen content, a lot of things people are still dealing with. Um, and I really like this format, being able to present this as just an audio where people might be able to be even working out while they're uh, listening to the to the panel, so um, it's a it's an interesting way to present this. Yeah, and uh, it is going to be a little bit longer. This one's uh, an hour long, so we're, we won't keep you. Uh, we'll get right to the the panel after a quick break. Meet the Synexis Biodefense System, the sole developer of patented technology that transforms ambient oxygen and humidity into dry hydrogen peroxide, or DHP. Wherever air goes in your facility, so too will DHP to effectively and continuously reduce viruses, bacteria, mold, odors, and insects from the air and surfaces. Learn more at Synexis.com. Welcome to everyone to Getting Back in the Pool, How to Safely Reopen Your Aquatics Facility. My name is Andy Berg, and I'm the Executive Editor for Athletic Business. Um, it is my pleasure to introduce you to our moderator, Ruby Newell-Legner. Ruby has been one of the top-rated speakers at AB Show since 1995, year after year. The partnership with her company, Seven Star Service and Athletic Business, allows us to bring training right to your computer. Ruby provides training and consulting for sports, leisure, and entertainment facilities to engage employees and create a positive service culture. As a certified virtual presenter, Ruby is designing customized online training programs to prepare staff members to offer a safe and healthy environment as they reopen their facilities. Welcome, Ruby. Thank you. Every time I look at that picture, I just brings back such great memories of athletic business that was taken in the audience. There used to be an audience behind there, but it's a, very, <laughs> it's a delight to be back here. And I would like to start out by saying it's so great to get to interview people who are working in aquatics. I miss those days. And this is a very, very special picture because that is my grandson. Oh, and by the way, my grandson started college last week. He grew up, but that was his first day in the pool. And how cool was that? Imagine how different it would have been if it would have been during COVID times. 
I doubt that they would have had to wear a mask, but still, it really is a great memory. And today we're going to talk about creating those memories for so many people around the United States. I do believe we've got all three at least corners of the world uh, covered here, and we've got lots of great things. But we want to know a little bit about you. So if you would type in the questions box, tell us where you're located, the city and the state, and if you have indoor, outdoor pools or both. I put a little example. I'm in Littleton, Colorado. Uh, we had snow yesterday. <laughs> Yay. And no snow today. So, uh, and I pretended that I have two indoor pools and six outdoor. <laughs> I've got a good imagination here. So I'm hearing, uh, thank you for typing in the little box there in the questions box. We've got uh, Leslie, who's from Tallahassee, Florida. Uh, Tiara from Atlanta, one indoor pool. Mostly outdoor pools from Leslie, uh, Judy from Houston, indoor pool, uh, La Miranda, California. And I'm just going to go through the locations and the pools because you guys are going so fast. Lots of indoor pools. Um, Honolulu, hello, Hawaii. Um, we've got uh, indoor pools, indoor pools, Laramie, Wyoming, Boston, Massachusetts. Mount Lake Terrace, Washington, indoor pool. Nacogdoches, Texas, I've got some buddies who live there. One outdoor, one rec, one indoor. Gosh, lots of variety here. Um, Peoria, Illinois, uh, I almost said Illinois because that's the way my husband says it, just a joke, um, bad joke, sorry. Um, Virginia, we've got uh, Littleton, Colorado, hello, Derek. I hired Derek just a few years ago, let's say like 35 years ago. Uh, Tina, Manchester, Washington, outdoor, lots of indoor, indoor, outdoor. Gosh, we've got a combination, which we were hoping for because we've got our panelists who can answer questions about both. So we're really excited to have this on there. I see the great list on there. We don't have time to read them all, but man, you guys are on board. We have right now almost 100 people that are listening to this, and we're going to get started with our first element here. Oh, I guess I have little arrows for you too there. We've got three panelists. You see them on the screen. It's been a delight working with them and getting to know them. And I tell you, they have some wisdom to share. So we're going to go one panelist at a time and then we'll open it up for questions. So get those questions ready. Go ahead and type them in the, the questions box. And when we pause in between each one of the panelists, we'll be able to get back to that. I'm going to start off with my buddy, Sean. Sean and I go way back. I don't know how many years, Sean, but there's been a lot. But you still look young, and I love that. So we're just going to pretend like we just met, okay? Um, Sean is the owner of uh, DeRosa <laughs> Aquatic Consulting, and he has done consulting all around the world. We actually uh, met a few months ago in Dubai. It was kind of fun there. Um, Sean created one of the first online certification programs worldwide to help prepare aquatic professionals to manage the risks of COVID-19. He's going to tell you a little bit about that today, and he's got a special surprise for you, too. Um, through his auditing and consulting services, Sean continues helping people, uh, helping pool and beach clients minimize risks and improve safety. If we had more time, I would ask him to explain how he has, he's an attorney 
and he's in aquatics, but that's too long of a story. So we are going to start off, and I I think that there's some pretty cool things here. I asked each one of the panelists to share just one piece of trivia that would be fun to know about them. Sean said that he has always loved being around the water. That's good. Although he had a very slow start in learning how to swim. On his first day of advanced beginner lessons, Sean remembers jumping into the water over his head, sinking to the bottom, looking up to the surface and waiting for lifeguard Elizabeth dun, 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 to come rescue him. She did, of course, by reaching into the pool, grabbing him by the ear, and pulling him to the surface. So is that a technique you teach today, Sean? <laughs> Whatever works, Ruby, whatever works. <laughs> to this day, Sean thinks that your assist is a valid rescue technique. Welcome, Sean. We're so glad to have you with us. We're going to get started with some questions. And uh, so, Sean, you know, you've worked at aquatics facilities for years, and you understand the challenges facility operators face working with staff and guests. So how do you recommend operators get started in addressing the risks of COVID-19? A great question and thanks for having me. I'm excited to be part of the panel. So I think there's so much information out there about COVID-19 uh, that we really need to start almost anew. We need to develop a resource library as operators. And I like to tell people to break that down into two categories. The first being medical information. In other words, where are you going to go to find resources on the medical aspects of SARS coronavirus 2? Uh, and of course, we have some well-known uh, organizations like the Centers for Disease Control uh, here in the US that puts out a lot of information for all sorts of providers, including aquatic professionals. Uh, on a worldwide level, there's the World Health Organization as well. Um, one of the, the sources that I recommend that really isn't so much targeted toward recreation professionals, aquatic professionals, it's more for healthcare settings, is a document put out by the CDC back in 2007 uh, that was uh, entitled Guidelines for Isolation Precautions. In other words, preventing transmission of infectious agents in healthcare settings. And the reason why I say this is a good document to have is because it really defines all the different methods that disease are transmitted. So as we start trying to understand how coronavirus or COVID-19 is transmitted, that document is a great resource to have. We also have to look at operationally. So once you have a solid foundation in the science, what are those resources out there that guide you and how you can alter program services and operations? And a lot of the professional associations have done a great job of creating resource documents. IAPA, the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions, has a document that they produce, the World Water Park Association uh, has a similar document, the NRPA has resources um, as well, and StarGuard Elite, if you're a StarGuard Elite client, have a very detailed operational guideline uh, that covers a lot uh, of what we would recommend as best practices today. Uh, and of course, there are other sources. The key here is to assemble all of that data so that you have information available as you move forward through your risk analysis. 
That's great. And, and some of those links are included in the handout that we will provide for everybody. So that's awesome. Thank you for that. So let's say I'm a pool operator. I'll go back to the old country and remember my roots. And um, I've done everything you've said. So I've got all my resources lined up. What comes next? What, what do I do with that information? So I think we need to understand the science. So I think that's a starting point, understanding transmission. Um, and I think as we've been living with COVID-19 over the past uh, number of months here in 2020, um, our understanding of transmission has evolved a little bit. Um, at first, we were so focused on fomites, on indirect transmission of taking something home from the grocery store, washing it down so that we don't then contract it, right? Um, and what we know is that although that is a possible means of transmission, it's not the primary way this disease is transmitted. Um, what the CDC and all of the World Health Organizations tell us is that droplet transmission, where a droplet can go directly into your eyes or your mouth, is where there is the highest risk. And we know that droplets only travel about six to seven feet before they fall to the ground from gravity. But recently, there's been a lot of discussion on short-range aerosolized transmission. In other words, small, small particles of the virus that might hover in the air. And you all might have heard about that restaurant in China where the air handling system sort of blew the disease, if you will, across the room and infected people more than six feet away um, from the person who originally had tested um, positive. So although the CDC right now says that the current data does not support long-range aerosol transmission, in other words, over meters and meters and meters, um, I think that there is information now that suggests on a, on a short range scale, um, when you're closer or when you're in a confined space or an area that's not well ventilated, um, that aerosolized transmission is a concern as well. Wow, so I, I, I saw that uh, the little blurb about the, the, the one in China that they did the chart and the air, air handling. And, it has made some of my friends very paranoid, so thank you for referencing that. Um, so what you're saying is that the, the greatest risk here it appears to be breathing in the infected particles and not touching contaminated surfaces, so, which is an area that many facilities have been really focusing on and cleaning and lots of uh, chemicals and uh, making sure that one facility we talked to last week is actually closing during the noon time to clean their facility. So it's been pretty intense. So from your perspective, does a better understanding of the risk of transmission change or influence the prevention measures that many of the facilities have put in place either for staff or for guests or for both? Yeah, so I think it does. So I think once we understand the main routes of transmission, if we were to plug this into a traditional risk management model where we look at the highest risk and the most dangerous outcome, we treat those risks a little bit differently than uh, less frequent risks. Uh, so I do think that we want to look at what are we doing to address, I don't want to use the word airborne, but we need to go there, the airborne concerns. In other words, from a lay person, we just might breathe it in. Whether it's a droplet, whether it's an aerosol, isn't really all that important. And I think there's a distinction between outdoor and indoor facilities, right? Outdoors, the wind can blow the disease away. Indoors, we don't have that, that same concern. 
Um, and then the risks may also differ based upon the facility. In other words, if you do not have the ability um, to put a purge cycle on your air handling system or open up doors or windows, that's gonna change your analysis. So understanding the main risks, I think is an important step uh, in addressing it. And of course, once you understand those risks, now you wanna develop policies and procedures based upon those risks that address those high risk activities or those high risk areas. And of course, because this is a, is a breathing concern, um, we're looking at trying to reduce the possibility that someone might come into contact with droplets. So that means face coverings for everyone indoors, uh, including lifeguards in the guard stand. It includes uh, barriers, um, sneeze guards. It includes uh, reducing capacity so that you don't have crowded spaces. It might include maintaining physical distance from staff and guests. Uh, or among your team members, which is a hidden risk that people tend to forget about. Uh, and it means looking at improved ventilation. We know in the pool business that indoor pools are not the most well-ventilated facilities. Well, with an, a, a potential for airborne or airborne-like transmission, um, ventilation is a big concern. Excellent list. And so what about the other, everything else that, that we hear facilities are doing to manage the risks? Um, are we are you saying to not worry about those things like cleaning protocols or tell us the prioritization level of that so absolutely not we have to still maintain a, a cleaning regimen we need to select epa approved cleaning products we need to establish cleaning regimen uh, re regimens but what we want to do is really focus enforcement issues um, and customer front forward facing proactive measures at addressing the the top risks the lower risks or the smaller risks, if you will, um, are things that we're still gonna do and we're going to document that we've done them. So make certain that you're using your floor markers, your warning signs, um, document all of your, your cleaning steps. We still wanna do those, uh, but most certainly we wanna really look at or focus in on the airborne risk as I do feel that that is still the primary mode of transmission. So seeing as you're one of the few aquatic experts that I know that also happens to be a licensed attorney, your mother must be so proud, how concerned should facility operators be, you know, regarding the possibilities of getting sued by someone claiming they contracted COVID-19 at their facility? So I'm hearing this from a lot of, of my clients, right? They're really worried about the, the legal aspect of dealing with um, COVID-19. And I think... I have to give that standard lawyer disclaimer. If you need specific legal advice, talk to an attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction. Our discussion is for educational purposes only. Um, but with that, we know that this is a pandemic. The issue is really going to be, can they prove that they contracted the virus at your facility? And if you're acting reasonably to take steps to limit transmission, uh, then they're going to be hard pressed to actually establish a valid claim. Now, there are some things that you can do to sort of beef up your defense, if you will. Um, one, I think it's important that you take trainings like this through athletic business. If there's a certification option, I strongly recommend that as well. Um, because that provides evidence that you've met a knowledge base uh, assessment, if you will. You have to follow all of your local state or local um, health orders. And of course, 
act reasonably, do what everyone is telling you to do, document those steps, and I think you'll be um, in a good position to defend any claim that you might see. Wow, such a lot of information you just shared with us. Uh, I'm going to open it up to see if there's any questions right now, and I'll ask our other two panelists to join us. So uh, I see that there are quite a few questions coming in, and I'm going to ask Andy to read those for us. So Andy, uh, give us an idea of what uh, people are wanting to know. Sure. So uh, one question that's been asked is specifically around hot mineral springs, spas, and jacuzzis at, in a resort setting. Um, and just kind of whether or not this type of, if there's anything specific to those settings or if this is pretty much applies to, to those, those situations as well. So I would say that the uh, standard approach that I think all of us will be recommended applies universally across all different facility types. Um, whether you're indoors or outdoors, there may be some shifts, um, but the, the type of facility, mineral, spring, indoor pool, um, outdoor pool isn't as important. Any other comments? Go ahead, Justin. Yeah, if I could jump in on that, I think that there is some concern in the industry. Um, of course, there are wide regional variations. But when you're talking about that aerialized uh, or aerosolized particle, um, things like hot tubs um, have a higher propensity to allow that to happen. So the, many of the people we talk to, the operators we talk to, the health departments, will either have that one person per hot tub um, or just close hot tubs entirely. I'm sure that that's a, a challenge for everybody because people like those. I know I do. Any other questions, Andy? Um, one other around managing swimmers in a, in a, in a lane um, and how, how to work that. Is that around reservations or um, just kind of, you know, how many how many swimmers can safely be in a, in a lap lane? I think Megan's going to address that. What do you want to go ahead and hear that? Yeah, I'd be glad to jump in on that one. Um, I think first you have to look at what your local guidance is. Um, here in Washington state, um, we've been told that we're only allowed to have one lap swimmer per lane during a certain phase. And they've addressed that throughout the phasing structure as a safe, as a safe start plan. Um, with a reservation system, I will talk about it in, in my presentation a little bit, but you can utilize multiple different options. Um, it helps with contact tracing as well as giving them a individualized place to be um, so that you don't have the flow issues and you don't have those people coming into close contact as Sean was sh uh, sharing with us earlier. So I would encourage um, looking at a reservation system for sure. And she'll be sharing a little bit more about that in a few minutes. So that's awesome. Um, Andy, we've got time for a couple more questions. Go ahead. Sure. Um, just one bit of housekeeping. Someone had asked whether or not they can uh, access this program uh, via archive uh, after the fact. And, and yes, that will be available online. Um, let's see here. So Deborah is asking about mask requirements. Uh, won't they get wet and ineffective in an indoor pool? So uh, that's a great question. So the recommendation is that the masks aren't worn in the water. So while they're swimming, it's really to be worn on the pool deck. I will say that there are some variations in the type of fabric um, and some uh, breathe better or allow for evaporation. Now, when we go back to the CDC, 
they're still recommending a cloth face covering. And I believe this week they released some additional guidance on Lycra-based uh, face coverings as well. So uh, go back to the CDC to check that out. But uh, face coverings are for the deck, not for the water. If I could add one thing on that, we have seen some uh, swim schools specifically that are still open where the face masks so or the, the guards, um, whether the effectiveness or that, you know, who knows. But um, some people are, are turning to those as a way to help people feel safe. And it, it's as, as much as a perception of, for the public that they, they see us doing it and then they're going to follow suit and will respect that we're taking the initiative. And so I think that is important. Okay. Anything else, Andy? Uh, just on that point, I, I, I'm I'm curious. Uh, are goggles recommended? Is infection possible through the eyes? Um, is that a is that a thing? So yeah. So goggles, of course, and anything that helps limit um, transmission of a liquid into the eye is important. But there has been some research done on the face shields, and from an OSHA bloodborne pathogens perspective, we know that the shield is for droplet transmission to stop that splattering. When we shift the conversation and go back to the science to the potential for aerosols, we know now that the flow of air will go around that shield. So it's important that uh, people still wear the face covering as well as the shield, that the shield alone is insufficient. One more note on that, something that I just learned yesterday in talking with an operator. Um, YMCAs locally here in Southern California, some of them are, are wearing the full scuba masks um, with the snorkel out the back, um, thinking that that may be a means of protection. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, I think it's time to introduce Megan. And Megan Playley is the Aquatic Program Administrator for Bainbridge Island Metropolitan Park and Recreation District. Um, how are things up there in Washington? Doing pretty good? It's going well. Um, it's definitely an interesting um, time and space right now, and thank you for having me today. Honored to have you. Here's a little bit more about her. Megan combines her background in athletic training and her role as a registered nurse to instill a culture of safety with her staff. In 2018 and 19, her staff has been acknowledged by the American Red Cross with the Training Excellence Award. And her staff also recognized and responded to both a heart attack and severe stroke, and both patrons have been back swimming on a regular basis. I just want to cheer because those are moments, you know, that's why we do what we do, and that's all the training we do, too. So congratulations to your staff. Um, I think I think she had the most my most favorite trivia that I've ever heard from someone and I'm gonna let your secret out here Megan because she secretly wishes she had a silicone mermaid tail I'm sure there's more to that story let's start with the question here Megan um, I understand that your facilities are the only indoor agencies operating in your area so with your restrict restrictive state guidelines um, how have you found a way to reopen both fiscally and safely? That's a really loaded question, and thank you for asking. Um, it's taken a lot of hours on our head coaches' time and um, our whole team to come up with ways to open. Because um, as we all know, aquatic, aquatic centers are money pits. Um, as much as we love them and as much as they bring so many people joy, um, they are expensive to run. 
So things that we had looked at um, in our area right now, we are in phase two in Kitsap County. Um, we're required to only allow one lap swimmer per lane, and that does not specify whether that is a swim team person or a lap swimmer. Um, so as you can tell, when we were open from 5 a.m. to 10 o'clock in the evening normally, we would have hundreds of people through our doors every day. Our capacity here for both facilities combined is 688. We are now down to only allowing 50 people, and that includes staff, between two large pools, and that's combined. So that has taken um, quite some time, especially when you have teams that are over 150 strong. And how do you get them all in and still give them training time? So it's been a big puzzle. Um, also giving our uh, individuals the opportunity to come in and just enjoy the water and keep their fitness up. We've adjusted temperatures. Um, that's something that we did to make both of our facility pools. So we have a competition pool and then a multi-purpose pool that normally runs quite warmer. Um, we went ahead and adjusted both facility um, facilities to be a cooler pool so that we can put teams in both facilities without them passing out. Um, so we've made some of those adjustments as well. Um, so it, it, it's a big puzzle and it's there's no correct way to do it. Um, the biggest thing is to look at what Sean was talking about before and really managing your risk. And I, I can imagine how challenging it was because fiscally, I mean, that's like such a reduction in your numbers. It's got to impact the budget quite a bit too. You know, Definitely you does. back to those days of the swim team ones that colder, public ones that warmer. And so how did that work out for you guys? <laughs> yeah. To so, be honest, um, our public has really, they are a very water loving um, community. We are not a big um, community by any stretch of the imagination. I think we have 20,000 people in the area and we have this huge aquatic center that you would normally see in somewhere like Tacoma. Um, we have a great amount of um, water participants. Um, we were very diligent in letting them know what was going on. Um, how, we, yeah, how did you prepare them for that? Emails. Um, we have people when we were closed um, in phase one that would stop by the pool just to check and see if we were open yet. Um, we have people call on a regular basis asking if we have open swim. That's definitely a no right now. But, um, it, you know, just making sure that you talk to them and we put everything on websites. We did MailChimps. We did everything possible to make sure that everybody knows what's going on. We talked to the newspapers um, so that we could definitely get our message out and what the price points were and why. Um, so we definitely did do so. That's great. And there's so many different ways that people get information. And of course, we love it when they read everything. We, we know they don't. So you've got to put it in very, you know, bullet points and really concise so that, you know, that they will devour it instead of these long documents. So, Correct. So have you, consider, have you considered a soft opening for your bigger user groups so they can help you vet your procedures and get used to it and actually for staff as well as for them? Yeah. Um, so one thing I, for a lot of those groups that um, I saw some of the questions coming in that they're getting ready to open or they're hoping to open and talking to their leadership about opening. Um, it would be my highly my biggest recommendation that you guys do a soft opening. 
Um, start with bringing your staff through and the coaches through and showing them what the plans are, having Zoom calls, going through skills, that kind of thing. But then do like a week or two where you test those procedures by bringing in your biggest user groups. It also helps train them so that they get used to the biggest things that are different and get a new normal so that once you start bringing in that community component, um, that are way less organized. Um, you have a, a successful successful team and your staff has been able to help um, find cracks in uh, your um, plans and you can make adjustments uh, before it becomes something that becomes catastrophic. You bet, you're, you're taking me back. So I'm working with a group right now creating their training program to do just what you're talking about. and. Uh, one of the, the first times we had the training program, we spent weeks putting it together. And then the questions that came from the staff were kind of like, oh, no, no, just self. We need we need to address that. Or, or they came up with the best questions that you know that the guests are going to ask, too. So it really was a powerful thing. So I love your recommendation of having that soft opening, even if it's just for staff to go through. And Zoom is perfect for that, to do a walkthrough and get that all those details outlined so that they are pushed into it and shoved into the information. It's just so hard. So I understand you can offer socially distance options for swim teams, water polo, swim lessons, and still offer independent lap, lap and water exercises. How are you doing that? It's, How do you find it all up? Uh, it's been a challenge, but um, one of the things goes back to what Sean was talking about is having those pre-plans. So every user group that wanted to come back in, and they all do, you need to have a plan with them, individualized to their team, because everything's a little bit different. Water polo is completely different than swimming laps. Um, so you need to have that plan and have it on site. And that's one of the requirements by many of the CDC guidelines, as well as your health departments, um, state and local. So making sure that you have those plans and you guys can look at the outlines. Um, so water polo right now, for instance, one of the plans that they gave me was putting uh, one lap swimmer in each lane. And then on the two outskirt lanes, they socially distance them down the lane and they're able to do um, individual ball tosses to work on their overhand. And we realized that we also needed them to be facing the wall to do that so that keeping that spray, right? So those were things that we worked on together so that when their team came back in, we knew that we were following the guidelines and that something wasn't going to go amiss. Same thing for swim teams. We brought them in and we were able to increase the kids in the water by getting a variance to tether um, some of the kids to the wall, which then increases the amount of kids that you can put in because they're no longer lap swimming and they can't come into contact. So we did some of those items. Um, in regards to swim lessons, swim lessons are imperative for our youth because that's where our biggest drownings happen. It's one of the leading causes of death for children under the age of 18. We need to keep swim lessons in there. And to do that, we're partnering with our parents again. So everybody from the age of level three down, everybody's getting in with their parents. Um, they're giving given an individualized area and they're doing swim lessons with our instructors on the pool deck being socially distanced. We have cue cards and we're giving them basically one-on-one -on -one instruction with their parents. 
um, in small small groups. So it's been a challenge, but our community is loving it. I really highly recommend that you guys look into it. I love that. It reminds me of the mom and tot phase, you know, where they, they come in, but it's just a little different. So you did make that social distancing happen and, and they're staying with the relatives. So that's really cool. Congratulations on that. Thank you. So with all this in mind, uh, what tools do you use to ensure that you have the max number of people allowed they're distanced and in case of emergency, they're still distanced. I mean, what tools do you use to track all who's in there and all that? Well, I use maxes. So I look at the both of the pool decks and we're only allowed 50. So I know if I have this many people here and this many people here, that's my max, right? So that's how I started building everything. Um, and we build pool maps for every hour. Some of the tools that I've used are Google Calendar that also keeps our programs um, updated on our schedule. And when they're in the facility, it also lets everybody know um, there are some adults that are still uncomfortable with coming into a facility that has children at the same time. So it gives them the opportunity to make sure when they register for their lap swim that they don't come in at the same time as, as the other pool serving swim lessons. So we've been able to kind of coordinate that. Um, RecTrack is the platform that we use here at the Park District. Um, I'm able to put max numbers and do an enroll by day. So that's a feature that they came out with to help us with this. Um, so I can put, I only have four lanes and then my staff at the front door when they're doing their house screens is able to give them a little name, um, a little card that goes with a table and a spot in the pool and that's their location. Um, We've used Sign Up Genius for our swim teams so that we know that we only can fill this many spots at this time with this coach. Um, that all is coordinated so that everything doesn't go over 50. Um, it's a lot of work, but as long as you all um, work within those same parameters and we don't go over the numbers in a certain area, then we always know we're going to be under 50. Wow, great. And you mentioned uh, that you use MailChimp for your emails and mm -hmm. you've got a lot of things going on there. Thank you so much. Great presentation. And I bet there's a lot of questions. So I'm going to open it up for questions here. So Andy, what questions do we have? Yeah, there's some good ones. Um, so uh, Connie is asking about swim meets and how you manage social distancing with timers behind the lanes. I'm guessing they mean an actual person behind the lanes. Yeah, so currently right now, we're not able to run any swim meets in our jurisdiction. We are looking at for um, some time trial type issues um, that are inter-squad only, um, where we will bring in only six kids per session, and they're going to switch off and on, um, and they'll be distant, and they'll each have their own plunger, and they'll have their own clipboard so that they can do their own timing. Um, so that's kind of... The way we're looking at it right now, we have our first trial run at that um, on the 27th, I believe. So I'll keep tuned. I'll let you know. <laughs> we, we do want to know. Any, anybody else want to comment on that? I think just real quick, I think that the industry is looking very creatively at doing using technology to to do virtual swim meets. Um, there's at least three software programs that I'm aware of with another one under development. Um, it's obviously not the same thing, but I think there are some some opportunities there, especially if you know facilities have really high tech video scoreboards um, to make it a little more interactive and fun. 
Wow, yep. interesting. Um, I think as well, just from the risk perspective, yep. I think what we're hearing is that the traditional meet, the event where you're bringing in hundreds of people onto the pool deck and in the stand, that's not happening. So we're we're shifting to a more socially distant or virtual meet instead, just for clarity. Hey, Major League Baseball last week was able to use Microsoft Teams to put uh, people in the stands, as you will, because they have that kind of bleacher system that they have. And I listened to a podcast on it, and it was hilarious because they put a Laker fan next to a, a, a Trailblazer fan, but they weren't really next to each other, but they were all, you know, in the same section, and they were, uh, you know, trying to high-five each other when it was all virtual. It was hilarious, but not a bad idea, you know? The concept is good, but just maybe choose the seats a little bit better. <laughs> uh, more questions, Andy? Yeah. Uh, Sam is asking about adjusting the pool temperatures and relating whether that relates only to patrons' comfort or if there's a ben benefit to preventing the spread of COVID as well? Um, from my knowledge, there isn't really a, a difference in the spread of COVID and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. The reason that we're doing that is to make them multifaceted um, so that we can put more kinds of programs in that type of water. Um, if we keep the pools too warm, then people are gonna overheat if they're trying to swim laps and get a good workout. So that's really the reasoning behind it. Um, you have a secondary uh, bonus, if you will, of also your propane costs and stuff are much lower if you keep it at a lower temperature. I think, yeah, I think for clarity, um, if you're maintaining your water quality within the proper parameters, uh, once the, the, the COVID sh should be neutralized pretty, pretty quickly within the water. So the temperature itself in that from that perspective wouldn't really matter. So, uh, Justin, thanks for joining us today. We're excited to have you. Uh, Thank you. It, it, I have to tell you, it was a delight working with everyone here because everybody has been great about uh, sharing what their specialties are, and they could have each done this whole program by themselves. So, um, my compliments. So, Justin is the principal of Aquatic Design Group, and he has been featured on several podcasts, written articles, and in done interviews, and related to safely designing safe pool environments in modern aquatic centers. He's currently working on more than three dozen new and renovation projects uh, around the country with a focus on COVID proofing designs. <laughs> Good luck with that, that's a lot. Thanks. Um, another favorite trivia, um, he said as a four-year-old, he broke his collarbone while playing at his grandmother's lake house on Lake Norman in North Carolina. But he refused to go to the doc doctor because he wanted to continue swimming. So he just stuck his hand in his suit and, and continued to swim for the rest of the week. Wow, what a trooper. We all have this aquatics gene. Thank you for joining us today. Let's start off with um, how important is messaging in safely reopening the aquatics facilities? So full disclosure here, I have a psychology background. Um, so a lot of, a lot of the, the approach on, on these types of questions kind of date back to that. Um, we've all been conditioned over the last few months, um, almost part of a year, um, to, to treat COVID very seriously. And so there's, there's reticence, and, and rightfully so, reticence by a lot of the 
percentage of the population with regards to how we interact in public spaces. Um, swimming has always been one of those environments where we're more exposed, we're more vulnerable, right? We're in swimsuits, we're scantily clad. Uh, some of us like to show off, others, uh, you know, not so much. And so when we're talking about the, the, the messaging based on that conditioning, you know, we have, there's something called anchoring psychology. Um, where you have a, 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 an ideal, a philosophy, whatever that we that we anchor around, and then our entire viewpoint and perception is tied to that. And, and that's one of the things that are good and bad about humanity is you know depending on what their anchor is. So when we're talking about messaging. Um, real safety is the stuff we've talked about so far. You know the social distancing, the face masks, uh, limiting the number of people in the space. However, perceived safety is probably equally important. Um, we have people who haven't been outside their homes um, and, and their, their knees are failing, their hips are failing. They need to get back in the water. We have the kids who are doing this from a life safety standpoint. Um, and so we, our duty as operators and, and as aquatic professionals is to make it a safe, welcoming and comfortable environment. And, and before we talk about that, we talk about it from a um, you know, religious perspective or demographic perspective or you know, self-identity. Now it's very much, in the, it's, we have to create a nurturing environment so that those confirmation biases are able to be confirmed that yes, this is a safe place to be. Wow, and so much to think about even before you start what you're going to say, how you're going to say it and get the messaging out and who you're going to serve. Like, I mean, look at all the groups that Megan was talking about, too. So there's so many differences and excellent points, too. So what steps should be taken to create that proper messaging with regards to the communication and the planning process? I think the first one is, as Sean said, and as Megan reinforced, we have to be consistent with all the guidelines, right? So the WHO, um, you know, all, all our federal guidelines, state guidelines, county guidelines, city guidelines, interdepartmental guidelines, we have to be consistent with that message. Uh, and that's incredibly important. Um, secondly, that we really need to create and tailor make that message for your facility. Um, for instance, I'm volunteering as an assistant coach on my son's baseball team. The message there is much different than the message at my daughter's home team, right? I mean, they're just different rules and different realities, even within the same community. And so with that, we have to have, you know, our facility portraying the message, both through written communication, through email, and then through verbal communication when you get to a facility. Um, our staff have to be good communicators and they have to be consistent. All it takes is one bad Someone having a bad day, I don't say bad lifeguard, but a, a lifeguard who's having a bad day, who doesn't have his mask, who has her mask on, who says something that's not consistent with the message, it can really be a turnoff and potentially a red flag to get the whole facility shut down. Um, next, you have to have buying from your users. So we have to make sure that the users understand the message. Um, and, and finally, the community and the continuity of those messages has to be as consistent as possible in an ever-changing paradigm. It's truly amazing all the different elements of it too and that back to that lifeguard having a bad day or, or somebody not being consistent with the rules and one person lets you get away with something and then it, another one doesn't, you know, then you've lost your, your the faith, the public's faith in you and, and it's just that inconsistency can really hurt you. Yeah, so, I think one, one other thing there um, that I forgot to mention that I should is that communication to be, should be two ways. So we should be listening to the needs, the concerns of our patrons. And just like we're doing today, you know, we're posting, please ask the questions and then answer them. I, I think it is really important to be able to have a user group come in and, and make sure they're answering the questions. And if it could be virtual, it doesn't have to be in person in preparation to come into the facility. 
So what are some of the most important things to do before patrons arrive at the facility? Can you go through a list with this? Yeah, and, and I'll try to be quick with this because um, a lot of it's already been talked about. But one, again, that message, you know, that communication has to be consistent, has to be clear. Um, one of the most frustrating things as a user is not knowing what to expect or what's going to be asked of you when you arrive. So make sure that's very clearly communicated um, through that reservation system. Um, here's what you're going to have to do upon check-in, you know, temperature check. Um, put your contact information in for those contract tra tracing type things, um, pay online ahead of time, and, you know, all those things, social distance, you're going to have tape marks where you have to step in. You have to wait outside, you know, and then you're 45 minutes in the facility. And then we have to, you know, get out in five minutes so that we can clean and get that extra group of people in. Uh, all those things I think are incredibly important. Having a reservation system that's logical and easy to use, I think is incredibly important. Um, so that's something that, that should be ironed out. Those payment things, they have to be secure. You know, we're, with a lot of these facilities haven't taken payments in the past. Um, and cybersecurity is, is a very real thing, as we know about from, you know, politics and, and the elections and everything else. Um, so I think th those are the biggest things. And they all have to tie back, as Sean outlined, to a fully vetted plan. You know, what is expected of us? What do we need to do? And frankly, what do we do when the inevitable happens, right? We have either Code Brown or someone cough starts coughing, you know, nonstop in the facility. What are those steps you have to take? And there's so many benefits to the contact tracing. You know, if you have a registration, then you can tell who is in the building when, and if you have to let somebody know that there was someone who was diagnosed with COVID, then it's easier to get to them. So that um, manual system's not gonna be able to do that as easily, but having something online that you can track and, and have the time and data in it, it's really gonna make a big difference too. Right. So what are the most important things that, to consider when patrons arrive at the facility? Could you go through that process? Yeah, I think it needs to be efficient. Um, for those of us who have kids who are doing in-person school, you know, that check-in process can be incredibly long. Same thing at our facilities. Um, so make sure we have enough staff out there to, um, or in wherever your, your point of access is, um, to facilitate that process and make it happen. If someone has, they know they only have 45 minutes in the water and it takes them 15 minutes to get through the lane, you're going to have a lot of unhappy patrons. Um, and, and, you know, again, getting back to this temperature checks, the face masks. Clear communication. You have to wear your face mask until you get right about when you jump in the water. Um, your path of travel. Ideally, through all the guidelines, you should have one way in and another way out, right? And so, some facilities that's just not possible. Um, but you want to make sure we're separating people and we're creating a safe environment. Your showers and restrooms. Again, this is going to vary regionally. Some facilities are not allowing anyone to use the restrooms, right? You know, there's maybe one open for emergency bio needs, but everything else is you show up in your swimsuit, you drop yourself on a chair or on the deck, you do your thing, and then you leave, right? You're not expected to do anything else. As, as one of the things that we were kind of joking about when we were rehearsing and practicing this was, you know, now's our chance to affect change in, in a powerful, meaningful way. Something as simple as making you shower before you get in the facility. I mean, that is the number one thing we can do to improve water quality. It also is something that, you know, maybe can help reduce some of those pathogens and some of those germs that, are, that we carry in us at all times before we get in the water. Um, user belongings. What do we do with user belongings? Users aren't going to want to just drop their stuff on the deck and have it get wet. So how do we clean those chairs? And then the duration of stay needs to obviously be very clearly communicated. Uh, getting back to those high-end scoreboards or even a low-tech scoreboard, just have something that makes it clear you have 10 minutes left, you have five minutes left, all right, time to get out of here. You bet. And as people come and go, I'm sure there's some issues there with, you know, one group's leaving and another one comes in, so there's that protocol. Talk to us about that. 
Yeah, I, that's that's always an interesting one. And again, that's going to vary. If, if you have a facility, outdoor facility is a lot easier um, to, to have people queue in a certain area and then allow people to leave. But what do you do in Minnesota or North Dakota or, or where you're from, Ruby? You know, it's snow yesterday. Um, how do you queue those people safely outside in an environment? Or can you have even can you even have those numbers to queue inside at all? Um, they have to wait in their car and then you flick, flick the lights on and off and then they can kind of herd in, scamper in. Um, those things really need to be uh, you know, planned out in advance. We had a situation last week where I was working with the university and um, the, the, the tool that they were going to use to do some checking before they came on to show up for duty, they had to have a smartphone so they could sign on and answer the questions about temperature if they've been around anybody and everybody um, you know and then the, the simple question is what, what what if you don't have a smartphone and yeah. like, you know so it's all those little details that you have to go through and make sure that they everybody understands and you have something that can accommodate everybody so it does make a big difference so let's talk about um, the most important things to consider when trying to establish the programs and the use of the facility yeah, I think the, and Megan touched on this a little bit, but we really want to figure out how to accommodate all our user groups. Um, so right now, it's it's fairly easy and fairly transparent and straightforward to have lap swimming, whether you have one person per lane, whether you have one at each end of the pool and you're only allowed to breathe to one side. Um, you know, on some of the swim teams are having one at each end and one in the center of the pool, and then they circle swim and they never, you know, allegedly cohabitate the same space. Um, but, but the pool configuration, when you're talking about water polo setups, when you're talking about diving boards, when you're talking about fitness classes, how are those markings on the deck? Are we rearranging lane lines to create you know, those safe areas uh, within the pool itself? Uh, and so that's something that, that really needs to be planned in advance so that it can be logical flow. So you're not re, you know, redoing things several times a day to accommodate those groups. Um, your deck and dryland training is something that needs to be planned for. Um, what are you allowing on the deck? If you do have an outdoor facility, that becomes something where you can probably safely allow teams spaced out to to do some of that thing, stuff as a team safely apart. Indoor facilities, we're going to be limited to the number of occupants. Um, spectators and companions. If you have a large indoor facility and you do have spectators and you're allowing spectators to enter your facility, you know they're probably not going to be on the pool deck. So is there another portion of the building they can be in? Um, uh, when you're dealing with those percentage of the population, maybe who is disabled or needs a companion, where does that companion go? Right? A lot of these companions need to be within eyesight uh, of, the, of the person, the user. So um, have a plan for that. Small group activities are different than group classes, which are different than some lessons. So again, having, having a good plan for that and, and where people go, where your instructors go, where your lifeguards go to maintain that social distancing. Um, one of the interesting things is, is aquatic play features. Splash pads, for instance. Um, now you're talking again about that uh, aerosolized particle. And so do we, do we allow a family maybe or a small group to rent out that space? Do we just not allow it to happen? Um, the type of spray itself is going to be different. Uh, you know, a sheet flow versus a splatter uh, effect is going to be a much different experience and a much different safety valve. Um, so just we have to think about all these things. There is no right answer, unfortunately, right now, other than be as safe as possible. And I think when, you know, the one other point here would be really look at your water quality and your air quality. Uh, if you can switch your HVAC system on an indoor facility to exhaust air, you know, so you're not recycling into the air, that would be ideal. If you have doors and can open them without making your dehumidification system go awry, that would be good. If you have the money to put into an air scrubber, plasma-based scrubber, that's probably the best thing you can do. And, and lastly, 
hopefully what this will lead to in terms of affecting change is doing more source capture of air within the auditoriums that really pulls out bad air and all the germs out at the source level. What a great opportunity for you to be designing these facilities with all this information too, because uh, it's not going to be going away tomorrow, you know, and certainly it, it, even if you make all these changes in the designs you are providing, it still allows normal things to happen. So, uh, wow, great information here. Let's bring on our other panelists and see what other questions we have. We have time for a couple of them here. And let's see, Andy, how are we doing with questions? Yeah, so um, one, one angle or uh, aspect that we didn't really talk about, um, someone was asking about any updates on just sort of locker room use and whether that's uh, something you're doing uh, at present. Megan? So yes, um, at this point we are not allowing any locker room use uh, for our purposes because we can't keep people socially distant. Um, we were joking before how, you know, it used to be creepy to have somebody in the locker rooms checking, kind of like a locker room monitor. Well, nowadays that's absolutely not okay. So you can't have people just hanging out in a, a bathroom, right? So to keep people spaced, we decided to close those down. Another idea is if you have gang showers, so one communal shower is still very common in most aquatic facilities, you're not going to be able to keep social distancing. Um, so for us, we close the locker rooms. We do have some family changing rooms for emergency purposes, but like Justin stated, most of our people are coming in. They're doing a deck shower. We installed a couple extra deck showers. They do a quick rinse. They hop in. They swim. We make the announcement. They hop out. They grab their things and leave. Um, we're not allowing any extra time in the in the facility or locker rooms. Well, in that regimented schedule, I'm sure that they appreciate the safety factor, but I'm sure it's hard for them to, you know, not want to hang around a little bit because I know they love their pools. So, uh, Andy, we have time for one more question, I think. Sure. One uh, specific to water polo. Uh, can you clarify, are you allowing sharing of the ball, passing drills, et cetera, or requiring individual assigned balls or just no sharing at all? So at this point um, in our state, we're not allowing any sharing of the water polo ball. Um, they're basically given a ball at the beginning of practice. Um, obviously, we're swimming in um, a uh, chlorinated water, so it's decontaminated. Um, so there's very little, I believe, perceived um, risk there. But at the same time, we do not allow passing drills or scrimmages or anything to that extent at this time. I have heard that there are certain areas that are allowing like high schools to practice and to share balls similar to a baseball team practicing or football team practicing. Um, no competitions from what I've heard. And from what I've heard, uh, no, you're not supposed to get within those six feet in any location. Um, water polo players being water polo players, that's a little harder to enforce maybe than with swimmers, but um, there, there is some flexibility there, I think, regionally across the country. Wow, and we have so many great questions coming in. I wish we could answer them all. Yeah. We'll get an email with every one of the panelists' uh, contact information, so please feel free to reach out to them. And uh, I do want to make a comment here because Deborah had shared that the the whole not using the showers, uh, they're calling it wrap and go. <laughs> so that was pretty cute there. 
So I think it's time to wrap up here. So um, I would like to have closing comments from everyone. Uh, let's start with Justin. Would you just share a couple nuggets with us? Yeah, I think my closing comment would be just use your head and be safe. Um, we're all going to get out of this in some way, shape or form. There will be a new normal. Um, my hope is that uh, the technology, you know, humans react in times of need and, and, and this is a time of need. And so we're using technology, as we talked about a little bit with some of the scoreboards to some of the virtual meets um, to create some really cool opportunities. I and mean, how awesome would it be if you could have a virtual meet inner squad during the Olympics and you could see yourself racing Kate Ledecky. I mean, that, that would just be so cool. So I, I think some, things like that could be amazing. I love it. Thank you for that creativity too. Uh, Megan, what, what would you like to leave with us? I, I think that the biggest one, and we keep circling around it, is communication. Um, making sure that everybody knows what rules you guys are following, making sure that your leadership knows why you're doing what you're doing so that they can um, help go to bat for you. Because um, it's not going to be easy when you tell people that they can't lap swim or they can't circle swim or, you know, in a lot of cases, why they can't share a lane with somebody in their household. Because um, it's not a single lane, it's looking lane to lane and what that distancing looks like for the next person next to you. Um, so, you know, just making really good choices and making sure that you're communicating with your users as well as your your current team. Great wisdom there. Sean, bring us home. So I think until we have a vaccine and until we really understand the long-term health implications of COVID-19 infection, we ought to take cautious steps forward um, and we need to let science be our guide. That's why we have to go back to the basics and really understand uh, what the latest science is telling us. We know uh, that opening indoor pools will not be the return to normal as we used to know it, but to Justin's point, let's be creative with it. And as long as we work together, we train our staff um, so that they know what the protocol, protocols are. We provide information to our customers, our guests, so that they understand our protocols. Together, we can all work to reduce the risks um, and we can get back in the water safely. Wow, it was such great information that you all shared with us today. Thank you to all our panelists. Thank you so much for attending today. It was a delight. From Athletic Business, uh, Seven Star Service, and our presenters, thank you all for joining us today. Woohoo! Great job, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, and we're back. Um, Jason, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about just sort of future webinars and, and where they can go to sign up and, and why, actually watch the video version. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we are continuing to offer these virtual workshops and our, our next one is actually scheduled for November 19th. The title of that one is uh, Press Pause on Play, How to Cope with the Unexpected Disruption of Your Sports Season. So obviously an issue that a lot of our you know listeners and readers are having to contend with. So you'll be uh, sure to want to kind of sign up and attend that one. And you can get more information at athleticbusiness.com slash webinar. And we'll drop a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah, uh, and with that, I think, oh, go ahead. I'm just going to say, I, I think it's worth noting that all of the, our past uh, webinars are also on demand if you want to watch the video. Um, and there's topics from aquatics, athletics, recreation, reopening strategies, revenue opportunities, staff training. So a ton of content out there. It's all really valuable. It all employs the perspectives of some um, experts in their fields and 
definitely check it out. Yeah, I, I just want to add to that as well. You know, I mean, it's it's very timely stuff. Uh, obviously, this is an unprecedented situation that we've been dealing with over the past several months. And, you know, like these webinar sessions that we've been doing have all been kind of happening in that context. So it's uh, it's timely information. Uh, you're going to want to get access to it and, and you can get it on demand and you can uh, watch at, at uh, you know, whenever you, whenever you like. So... And with that, we'll say one more quick thanks to our sponsor, Synexus. And until next time, take it easy.